across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. So, how's the brave new world going for you? Does it feel like life has returned to normal? Because it doesn't quite feel like that for me. Does it feel uh, like you can do whatever you want? Because it doesn't quite feel like that to me either. Does it seem like everyone is going about their business as if there was no more pandemic anymore? Actually, it does feel a little bit like that. So it's all a bit confusing, isn't it? Nobody's really absolutely sure what's going on. But beware, because there is a bit of a false dawn going on. Here, of course, at the Home of Common Sense, we will bring you the reality of life, uh, which would appear to be this. Boris Johnson can't stop the wave of crime engulfing our communities, despite his threat to beat it with a series of measures, including criminals being made to clean up the streets. It might be a good idea, but will it actually make any difference? Pretty Patel can't stop thousands of illegal migrants arriving on our shores, despite giving millions of pounds to France and threatening to lock up the human traffickers. And the NHS is today claiming that it can't deal with all the people that need medical treatment because it's more stretched now than it was in January at the peak of COVID, but not because of a problem with the disease, but more of a problem of management. Too many people have been pinged and are not working. Too many people have gone on holiday. Too many people uh, are taking time off because they're stressed out and too few beds are available because they've spaced them all out because of COVID. Whatever can we do? We'll be seeking guidance from a variety of experts this morning, kicking off with Colonel Bob Stewart, Tory MP for Beckenham, a man that speaks an awful lot of common sense. Uh, We shall be seeking a lot of that today, of course, if nothing else. And to get a proper perspective, we'll be asking all of you as well what your experiences are as well, both in the NHS while trying to see a doctor and in dealing with the police and solving crimes. If you've ever had to deal with the police in the past year, we'd love to hear your stories. 0344 499 1000. Coming up, we'll be heading over to France as well to get a handle on what they're saying about the migrant crisis. And we'll get a flavour of the French reaction to vaccine passports with Charles-Henri Gallois, president of Generation Frexit. And we're also joined by Sean Bailey, Conservative London Assembly member on the fight against crime and whether Boris and his plan can win it. 0344 499 1000. We've also got Kevin O'Sullivan, who's back from his staycation in the West Country. And LaDonna Harvey is here from the US of A as well. You're listening to me, Mike Graham, right here on the fastest growing radio station on the planet, the original and the best. It is, of course, Talk Radio. The independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Now, let us, without further ado, uh, make a move across to Colonel Bob Stewart, Conservative MP for Beckenham. Colonel Bob, a very good morning to you. Hello, Mike. Good morning. Very good morning. Thank you very much for joining us. We've got a few things to kind of uh, meander around today, uh, Bob. And not a lot of talk around uh, Boris's plan, his crime bill uh, and his crime plan that he's going to roll out later on today, uh, in which he's going to try and get to grips with the people's relationship with the police, really. What, what are you making of that? I think I think it's a good move. For goodness sake, we've... We, we, crime is increasing in London, particularly, Mike. We, we've got to get a, as much a grip of it as we can. Decent, honest people are frightened, and um, therefore we've got to protect them, and that's the purpose of the police. Yes. Where do you think the police have been getting it wrong lately? Because it seems to me that the ordinary policeman and woman on the street is actually doing the best job that they can do, but they're not being led particularly well. Well, to be honest, I speak to a heck of a lot of policemen. Um, every day I speak to policemen. I think they're doing it extremely well. I just wish they'd get a better break from the, the press. I mean, you know, for example, in riots, it's just the police that have done something wrong. There's nothing... It's not the rioters that are trying to batter them to hell or, you know, at, attack, you know, property. And the police are duty-bound to try and protect them. They get a really bad press sometimes. Um, not from you, I have to say, and not from a lot of people, but some uh, elements of the media are immediately on the side of the rioters, and I'm not. No, I get that, and I know that you're a great uh, defender of the press, uh, Colonel Bob, but also at the same time, you're quite critical of large parts of it, aren't you? Well, I'm critical of parts of it that don't don't give a fair picture. I mean, some of, some of the stories, you know, when I was in the military... You know, one bad story was magnified out of all proportion to all the good stories. And that works exactly the same for the police. The police trying to do their very best. They are honourable, decent people trying to protect other people. And when they when they are on the streets, they are unfairly attacked and ridiculed sometimes. 
Yes. And so this idea, which is on the front page of the Mail today, Pretty Patel's written a piece saying she's going to make yobs clean the streets. It's a bit of a kind of back to basics, isn't it? Well, I so. I hope people get that. I mean, if you, 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 I'm outside my house, I just watch sometimes cars just throw rubbish out of the street, mm. on the streets. What are people thinking? Someone's got to pick that up. Well, I, I don't think of it anyone better to pick it up than someone that's done wrong. Yeah, absolutely. And officers will also be given more powers to seize knives um, under a relaxation of restrictions on their stop and search powers as well. So there'll be more stop and search. Again, a lot of people are against that. What do you say to them? Well, I say, for goodness sake, when you've had your child not or had some someone in your family, I bet your, your, your attitude would change. Uh, frankly, I haven't. But I understand the situation. I mean, imagine yourself living in, in South London. You're from a, you know, an ethnic minority group and you're a decent mum trying to bring up her, her, her boys. And those boys are coerced into joining uh, gangs. They're frightened. The mum's frightened that when they go out, they might be actually a force to do things they don't want to do or indeed assaulted and sometimes killed. I mean, you've been involved, Bob, in, 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 in the military in doing kind of police work in a way. I mean, when you were in Bosnia, um, quite a lot of what you were doing was more about keeping the peace than it was about, you know, fighting anyone. Um, do you think there's anything that you can offer to the police and also to, to Boris Johnson as far as what measures might make London and other cities in this country safer for people? The most important thing a politician can do Mike, is to support the police and not run them down. And several members of parliament actually run down the police. I think they are a disgrace. They know what they're talking about often, and they haven't actually been to see the police and talk to them. So that's the most important thing I can do, is continue to go out and say, the police are good, not bad. It will be the occasional mistake they made, but it will normally be a mistake of good intention. And actually, they're human. Um, and there must be, I mean, I just speak to police police officers who actually have to stand there and be hit. And if they actually raise something, fist back, it's them that's in the wrong, mm. for goodness sake. Yes, it does seem as though it's all been tipped onto its head, does it not? And also during the whole kind of period of the, the various lockdowns that we've had, they have been asked to do some ludicrous things, like going and knocking on people's doors and asking them if they've got all the six people in the house. Yeah, well, I, I haven't heard, well, I've heard of that, but I haven't seen much of it. I would think, uh, you know, uh, police officers, senior police officers should, should try and avoid doing that sort of thing. But at the same time, they have, the police force is there to maintain the law. If, if we have laws that um, are a bit daft, um, the police still have to maintain them. I, I feel sorry for them. They're in a cleft stick then. Mm. So do you think this will actually help them then if it does give individual powers to individual police officers to do more actually face to face on the streets to stop violence and to stop crime? Because there is a sense in some parts of this country that there is not enough. There's one, there's not enough police to be seen. And two, the people who are committing these crimes, which are sometimes low level crimes, think they're just going to get away with it because they do. Well, yeah, that's the point. I, I want less of them to get away with it. And I want more support for the police from, from everyone, not just politicians, but also general public. The police are there for everyone's protection. They're the only people that actually put themselves in danger often. That's not, not exclusively. There's some, some very brave women and men who actually will go immediately to support the police. But in my experience, I've seen too much of people actually not supporting the police, not only by in the words they say, but also on the street. If there's a if there's an incident, say, I mean, it is the duty of every one of us to go and help the police when they're actually overwhelmed. It's the duty of all, all of us. The police don't want that to happen. Uh, I know they often say we don't want to get you involved, but I personally think we all ought to take responsibility for policing, not just those people in uniform. Mm. And you and I, Bob, haven't spoken uh, on Talk Radio for quite a long time. What have you made of the last year and how we've all coped with it and how you've coped with it and where we are now? Because like I was saying, it's kind of, we feel as if we're slightly in limbo at the moment. We're not quite out of it. We're not quite in it. 
you know, what are you thinking about all that? Well, you know, Mike, I'm a fan of yours. I don't want you to get too carried away with that <laughs> while you drink your <laughs> gin. Um, but I think um, radio stations have been absolutely superb, actually, during the, the lockdown. They have been a, a lifeblood. I mean, and people, what I particularly like about radio is talking about problems and allowing the problem to actually be aired and giving people time, people that agree with me on your show, maybe. You give them time to speak. I'm not just thinking of talk radio, I'm talking of other radio yep. stations too. And yep. when when you, someone like you, a presenter, actually is fair, and I, I want fairness in, in the presenters. I don't want you necessarily to agree with me. Well, I would like you to agree with me, but I mean, the fact of the matter is, your, your job is to actually tease out the arguments. And that's the great thing about radio, Radio actually gives time. Television doesn't, and the newspapers is, is just a one-way one story. But on when you have a discussion program like yours, you can get other views too. When people ring in, you get some absolute crazies ringing in. But um, you've got to be polite and decent and allow them to have their say up to a point. And then you've got some people you may fundamentally disagree with, but still you give them the airtime to say it. And that's what our democracy and our freedoms are all about, to allow the crazies to have their say. But hopefully the majority of people will realise they're nuts. Yes. Well, we do occasionally get the Labour Party on from time to time. I didn't mean to obviously uh, make that uh, make that connection. But, what <laughs> it, but speaking, of, of, uh, <laughs> speaking of our freedoms, Bob, I mean, you know, we've lost quite a few. Um, we've got various different views on how we should be getting them back whether there should be things like vaccine passports, whether you should have to reveal what your medical details are before you can walk into a nightclub. What's your view of all of that? I don't like it, to be honest. It's, it's very much against my personal philosophy. That I, mean, I don't think it's conservative philosophy either. But, you know, one thing about the Conservative Party and, and government, you've got to sometimes be pragmatic. Now, I don't know whether having a COVID passport as such, i.e. proving you've had two, two jabs, um, will, will actually decrease the incidence of people dying, which is what we're talking about. I don't know that. I hope that's not the case. I hope we don't have to have vaccine passports. Um, I find it pretty envious that my kids can't go abroad at the moment because um, they haven't had... Um, my wife can go abroad, she has, to stay with her sister, but the kids are stuck with me. I'm stuck with two kids and a dog um, uh, because um, my wife's gone, but I don't, don't mind that, I quite like it. Um, <laughs> but the fact of the matter is I don't like these passports at all, but I do accept that I am not the person, and neither are you, Mike. neither of us are the person that has real responsibility for making that decision. And it really does come down to the Prime Minister. And if he gets wrong, my goodness, the media will turn on him fast. So it's a real responsibility to try and get this right. I don't like vaccine passports. I don't want them. Um, but if the Prime Minister tells me to my face, and he has on a couple of times during the pandemic, told me his, his view, and I've actually said it on the radio. I've spoken to the Prime Minister about this. He said this. Um, I hope I wasn't breaking confidence when I did that. But the Prime Minister is someone that doesn't like COVID passports either. I'm quite sure of that. I'm quite sure that the Prime Minister doesn't like in any way any restriction on privileges. He doesn't. But he feels in his position that he has no choice to do it for, because his primary responsibility is the safety of the country. Now, you may disagree that actually he's made that the wrong choice, but it weighs very heavily on Boris Johnson. He, he, he actually takes anyone that's prime minister, suddenly takes on the responsibility for looking after you me, and everyone listening to this programme. And that responsibility is something that neither you nor I have. 
That's true. I have other responsibilities. Though. Stay with us, Bob, if you will, because I've just got a few more things to ask you about. Very, very interesting what you've been saying. Colonel Bob Stewart with me. He's the Conservative MP for Beckenham. If you've got a question for him, by all means, let us know and we will put it to him. Right now, they're here on Talk Radio TV. We're going to take a short break. Uh, we'll be back with Colonel Bob Stewart. I want to ask him about the migrant crisis and I'm going to ask him about SAGE as well. This is Talk Radio. Across the UK, online, on DAB+, and on the Talk Radio app. The Independent Republic of Mike Gray. On Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. We're talking to Colonel Bob Stewart instead of MP4 Beckenham. We've been talking, Bob, about the responsibility that the Prime Minister has. I wonder, though, sometimes if he's listening to the wrong people, because if you and I say that we don't know uh, what it's like to have that responsibility and we're not qualified to make those judgments, then I don't think people like Neil Ferguson from Sage is, is qualified either. He's a behavioural psychologist, a man uh, who seems to get all predictions that he makes completely and utterly wrong. And yet he's still a government advisor. And I worry that people like that, who are telling the Prime Minister things that uh, may affect his judgment, uh, are having a bit too much power. Yeah, my understanding that Sage is quite a lot of people, Mike. Um, it's not just Ferguson. Oh, it is, yeah. There's other, yeah. There, so, I mean, presumably, um, the Prime Minister's listening to them. They come to a collective, uh, collective judgment uh, and, and a recommendation. And it's up to the Prime Minister to accept it, yes. But, I mean, I would very much hope that, that actually there's not just, you know, this committee is, is quite broad. I think it's over 20. I'm not, I'm not quite sure, but I think it's over 20 people. It is about 28, got, I think. Yeah, up, they've got to decide on, on what they recommend. Now, it's up to the Prime Minister to decide it. He will have to put the politics into it. For example, um, there are a heck of a lot of people in my constituency who are telling me it's barking mad to take restrictions off. There's quite a few people in my constituency arguing we should never have had restrictions in the first place. Mm. And um, my my view is, uh, frankly, I, I don't want restrictions. I want restrictions off. But equally, I've got that got to be tempered against the idea that we might actually be running a considerable risk by so doing. And so I'm quite sure there's the same sort of pressures that, that come, come on the Prime Minister, despite what Sage has to say, and he will be getting advice from other people, for example, um, members of the Cabinet, the yes. Secretary. Yes, I think uh, I think that's I think that's right, and it would appear that having lost Matt Hancock, um, life is going to return to normal quicker than it would have done uh, if we had not. Let me just ask you finally, Bob, about the migrant crisis, because with your military experience, I mean, obviously you'll know a bit about um, protecting borders and protecting um, people from um, uh, from being able to just sort of walk into countries, as it were. But it appears that we are in a situation now where nobody can stop uh, this kind of invasion by people who feel like they want to come here and we can't stop them. Well, I would like the, you know, all these boats to be turned round. That's in principle. In practice, it's quite difficult when you find a boat, a boatload with children and, um, and other vulnerable people in the boat. I mean, you're asking coast guards and, you know, Royal Navy personnel to, to be really quite vicious. Mm. They're not like that, Mike. They're like you and I. I mean, they they well, I think they're like you and I. Um, in far as I hope we, we we have some sympathy. The laws of the sea also demand that if they're in our waters, we take responsibility for them. We don't like mm. I would I'm people have criticized T Patel for sending money to France to patrol the beaches, for example. Yeah. Well, I yeah. I'd like to know what else she could do. She has to obey the law. And the, the law, it's not EU law, it's the law of the sea mm. and international law, which we've endorsed at the United Nations. Now, I know pretty, pretty well, to use double, double word, <laughs> um, pretty actually would like this matter resolved. It's not... Well, she's not the not only one. She and she's Hmm? She's not the only one that wants it resolved. I think most people in this country want it resolved. She's the one with responsibility who gets the pain, Mike. And um, and every time she says, right, well, I'm quite sure her 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 default position is don't let the boats come in, turn them back, send them back. And then she will get advice from the legal people that support her, say, you are not allowed to do that, Secretary of State. You can't do it. 
you can't add up in Parliament to make such a comment because actually you're putting people's lives in danger. I get that. You get that. It, it, is, it is a no-win situation sometimes on this. I mean, after all, Theresa May was Home Office uh, Minister. Yonks and yonks. Every single year she stand up and say she was going to get a grip of this immigration yeah. thing, people coming. And every single year she failed. It's not through lack of trying, but for some reason there were always obstacles that are, may not even be apparent to me and you, but, but are there nonetheless, and she can't do it. Yeah. Well, I think the pro one of the problems, Bob, is that this is no longer a simple case of people seeking asylum in a country because they need to be safe from somebody following them and chasing them and trying to kill them. And it's not like that anymore. Now it's a business. Now it's a multi-million pound criminal enterprise. My wife visited, she just a, you know, personal, a personal visit she went there. Mm. And she said something like 95% of the people there were economic migrants. Yeah, they are. And so... The five percent that were not refugees, they should have sought refugee status in a country before they got to the UK. So, mm. you know, we know the arguments. We know the arguments on that. And equally, the the children that are there are children that are actually quite children. Some of them, you might doubt how old they they actually are. But fundamentally, they have often been sent on this huge journey for uh, children, children, and we're talking up to 18, 19, um, by their families, mm. because actually they thought the risk was worth it. Well, frankly, I've got two points on that. One, the family shouldn't have done it. And second, my second point is they must be pretty flipping desperate to send a, a, a young adult all that way. So, you know, although I'm a so-called right-wing Tory, someone that... Um, would like the matter resolved by, you know, send them back, do that sort of thing. We can't do it easily. If we could fix it, we would have done so before. So it becomes, it, it remains an ongoing problem and which Frank fundamentally, I will the, the Home Secretary as much support as I can. Okay. Colonel Bob Stewart, thank you very much as ever for talking to us. Uh, Conservative MP for Beckenham. Much food for thought. Across the UK, online, on DAB and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. Of course, now available on your television, on Apple TV, on Rakuten, on Samsung TV+, Plus, on Roku and on YouTube. Uh, we are on the lot. For details, go to talkradio.tv or simply download the Talk Radio TV app on the App Store. Very easy, very simple. Uh, hours of pleasure. Uh, and it costs you absolutely nothing, which is tremendous, isn't it? Absolutely fantastic. Now, uh, let us talk about the NHS. Colonel Bob Stewart gave us some food for thought about the migrant issue, um, about va vaccine passports. We're going to be talking uh, to uh, a French com uh, a politician coming up, Charles-Henri Gallois, president of the Generation Frexit. Uh, we're going to get his perspective on things from the other side of the channel, uh, not just to do with vaccine passports, but to do with the migrants and to do with Emmanuel Macron, of course, as well. Right now, though, let's talk to Dr. Lawrence Gerlis, because the NHS is apparently saying today that basically the NHS is under just as much pressure now as it ever was at the height of the pandemic and the height of the death rates and, and the soaring hospital admi admissions back in January, uh, which means that basically nothing can now be done and it may get worse. Dr Lawrence, a very good morning to you. Morning, Mike. Thanks very much for joining us. We've not spoken for a while, Lawrence. So, so uh, first of all, let me get your, your perspective on COVID. Uh, cases obviously coming down, infection yeah. rates coming down, it would seem. Yeah. Um, vaccination rates obviously uh, still not going as quickly perhaps as the government would like, but have clearly had a no. good effect on, uh, on the spread of it. What's your, what's your take? Yeah, over 90% of the population have antibodies. Uh, numbers coming down because we've stopped all this ridiculous mass testing. So reduced number of false positive tests, now the schools have closed. That's where a lot of the, the uh, false positives or positive tests that weren't, weren't actually cases were being picked up. So we're now seeing real numbers, and it's a real decrease. I don't buy into this idea that, that there's more infection out there, but this is a real decrease, and it will continue, and it makes a complete nonsense of those people who were predicting 100,000 or yeah. 200,000 
cases a day. Yeah. So that's, that's good to see, and that's going to continue to drop. And that includes, of course, the likes of Neil Ferguson from Sage and also Sakir Starmer, who bought into that nonsense as well. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, they, they've got so many things wrong. I, I don't understand why so many people, journalists and politicians, are invested in trying to create fear and mm. promote bad news. I've never understood it. I understand it even less now. Uh, we've we've rolled out the vaccination campaign. I would like more young people to get the vaccine. I'm, I'm still hearing of cases. Over 90% of the positive cases are now in unvaccinated people, uh, and that's not being um, reported enough. Um, so the young people should get themselves vaccinated. And if they've got their vaccines, then there's no need to have an argument about whether a vaccine passport is a good or a bad thing. Just go and get your two vaccines, quite frankly, and then we don't have to worry about you know, the moral or ethical issues of uh, vaccine passports because you, everyone will, will have their two vaccines. Yeah, well, except everyone won't. I mean, there'll never be a point. It's a bit like saying there will be zero COVID. You know, you'll never have a point where you've got 100% people uh, in the country who have had two vaccines because some people, for one reason or another, won't have them for either medical reasons or may not want to have them. I find it slightly sinister that the government are kind of making this an issue in order to try and persuade people to do something because, again, that's right out of the SAGE playbook. It's all about trying to persuade people to do some particular thing by threatening them with something else. Else. Yeah, it's the psychological warfare. This is a new thing that that, that uh, Sage and the others have tried to uh, change our way of behaviour mm. by frightening us with some something they've made up. You see, and and this we've had this for eighteen months now, and, and I'm tired of it. I'm tired of being lied to. Yeah. I'm tired of, of being given um, a f- false information, uh, false advice in order to change behaviour. Um, and, and look, I, I agree, not everyone can have the vaccine. I think we should encourage everyone to have two vaccines and, and then open up, you know, the sports events and the light clubs, irrespective of whether they've had the vaccines or not. Exactly. Because we've, we've not yet seen a surge uh, in cases from the opening of the nightclubs. It may be a bit early, but I would hope over the next week or so it will become clear that they are not the hotbed of transmission that everyone thought yeah. they might be. Well, there might even be that. But the point is, as you and I have discussed before, you know, it may well be that there will be peaks from now for every now and again. But the point is, is that because we have now got a much better way of controlling it, um, it's never going to be as bad as it was back in January because that was before yeah. people had the vaccine. So, you know, my yeah. view has always been, you know, there are, of course, there are going to be uh, days and, and weeks and particular months when when there is a spike. But, you know, so what? The point is life goes on. Yeah. Yeah, and we are we are winning this one, and uh, I, I, we need to look at some of the travel restrictions because there's there's a lot of nonsense going on there. The whole pandemic situation, which is affecting the NHS as well. Mm. Um, I, I see online doctors having to work extra shifts because their colleagues are, are isolating for ten days. That's still happening despite the the exemption. So, uh, and that's probably one of the major factors affecting the health service right now. Yes. Something you mentioned well, I mean, that's one of the things. I mean, the fact that the NHS is claiming that it's now in a worse state or the similar state of, of, of collapse as it was in January is entirely of its own making because it's partly yeah. due to the, the, the numbers of people who are uh, self-isolating because they've been pinged, partly due to the numbers of people on holiday because they're stressed out and partly due to the fact that they've still got um, spaced out beds in, 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 in hospital awards. And a lot of people are asking me, you know, why do you need to still have beds that are spaced out and, and socially distanced when that's no longer the case outside the hospital? Yeah, the problem is, Mike, uh, that we now know that half the cases reported in hospital were people that didn't have COVID when they went right. in. So uh, we're talking about deaths in hospital of people with COVID, people who caught it in hospital. Mm. So I'm still not, not happy um, that the hospitals have got their act together. I would. I know some hospitals have tried to have a clean area and a dirty area, but presumably staff and porters and so on were moving from one to the other. It would have been probably better to have a COVID hospital, yeah. um, keep the nightingales open, and then keep clean hospitals without the social distancing, do the lateral mm. flow t- uh, intensively, and make sure there's no COVID in the hospital. Once you've got COVID anywhere in the hospital, it's impossible to stop it spreading. Mm. And, and as I said, half the, the deaths in hospital were in people who did not have COVID when they went yeah. into hospital. Exactly right. And I've said that for, and I've been saying that for months. And finally, now the the data is actually uh, backing what backing up my argument. But if that's the case, Lawrence, then sh- surely the social distancing of the beds uh, hasn't made any difference. Then, no, it's it's not working. For all we know, the virus is going through the air conditioning system, more likely just being carried by staff 
uh, as I say, porters and so on who are moving through the hospital. Um, but clearly hospitals are, are not a good place to be, which, which is worrying. If you're a patient with cancer or a patient with heart disease, um, you've been waiting for your treatment. If now you're being told you need to come in to, to get a test or treatment, if you're lucky enough to get that far, there's still a chance that you're going to pick up COVID in the hospital. So I, I'm disappointed that the NHS have not sorted that side of things out because I've had plenty of time. Yes, to, exactly. To and you know what's coming, don't you? I mean, we'll have another winter of discontent. We'll have another crisis in the NHS. There'll be another uh, call for more money to be pumped into it because there's not enough doctors or not enough nurses. And so the, the merry-go-round begins again. And, you know, I'm getting a bit tired of the fact that nobody seems capable of fixing the problem. It's broke. The car, it's like a car with the big end gone. The engine's still running, so it's just its just going along. The exhaust has fallen off. It's a flat tire, sticky tape and string holding together. And now COVID's come along. You're driving in a foot of water. But as long as the car's still going and people are still clapping for the NHS, which, you see, the sanctification of the NHS means you can't criticise it. It has several effects. One is you can't criticise it. Second thing, as we say, is the envy of the world. Look at America. We don't want to be like the Americans. And thirdly, and this is something not often talked about, it creates a level of arrogance among the staff. And I think that's also very worrying. And I've, obviously, I've worked in the NHS, and I know what it's like to feel that you're a hero. Uh, you know, bear in mind, NHS staff are not volunteers. They're being paid. But the, the hero worshipping actually is not good for patients because it creates a level of arrogance. We see this at the GP level where the receptionists and, and, and some of the GPs have basically decided they're going to close their doors to everyone. I've seen cases mm. this week, a child with near infection wasn't even offered a phone consultation. I've seen patients who have been uh, denied their, their cancer treatment. I've seen people with urine infections uh, that have been mistreated or not treated. Um, and it goes on. And there has to be a level of arrogance that you can turn around and say to a sick person, no, we're not going to see you and feel that you've got some moral superiority because you work in the NHS, which is being lauded and praised, and people are clapping for you on a doorstep. Mm. And that, that aspect of, of, of the, the moral superiority of the NHS has worried me for many years. I, I no longer work in the NHS. Uh, I'm paid for what I do. Patients pay me. But they're paying in the NHS, and the doctors and nurses are being paid. It's that the money's taking a more secure, circuitous route. There's no moral superiority of, of the NHS over a doctor such as myself who's now uh, not in the NHS. Uh, but uh, all of these things add up, along with the intense bureaucracy of the NHS, mm. which slows things down, that s several levels of bureaucrats can put rules in to say, no, we're not doing this, or before your operation. I, and I've seen this. I, uh, one of my friends had to have an eye operation. She had to have a PCR swab. But then her whole family had to isolate for three days after her PCR swab before she went into hospital. Well, what's the point of That's that? That's ridiculous, what's... isn't it? It's just yeah, ridiculous. It's like, it's like a sort of... But it's almost, it's almost like it's an analogue business in a digital world, yeah. isn't it? It doesn't seem to understand I, the modern world. That's a very good description. Very good description. They don't... I mean, and it's also a literal description. There is a use of technology. We've seen... Um, uh, you know, I'm, I'm actually a fan of, of doing um, remote consultations, but the hospitals are not are not caught up with this as a way of speeding things up. Um, they're still you know, phoning patients, sending letters to mm -hmm. patients, um, uh, which get lost in the post, and then the appointment gets cancelled because the patient didn't get the letter on time, and then they're, they're three months down the line. And there's no incentive. The trouble is... Um, we all need to be incentivized. I'm not saying that we should all be paid for every patient we see. There's no incentive for an NHS GP uh, or even a hospital doctor to give good care to people. Mm. They're not even, other than self-worth and self-pride and motivation, there's really no incentive. And that worries me as well. You know, GPs are paid a capitation fee, a fee for every patient on the list. There's absolutely no incentive to do anything mm. for those patients. And... I know that incentivization has its own issues and doctors can be greedy and, and manipulate the system, but it, it's, it, the system's broke and, and it's going to go on being like this, as you say. Another story in the winter, more political football, um, and the next election, Labour will come up with the story about, you know, the Conservatives are going to sell off the NHS to mm. Donald Trump or, or similar, as they did last time. Yeah. So it becomes too political. And you, 
the politicians can't actually make the change. That's the trouble. Because we, the public, in a sense, have voted for this form of NHS. Because the politicians know they can't... I mean, you've suggested in the past £5 for every GP consultation, which probably would work mm. once you don't become the riots in the streets. It probably actually would work. It would decrease demand, it would raise a bit of money, it would make the NHS workable. Politicians know they can't, they can't bring that in, so, and they can't bring it in because people vote against it. Therefore, I say, you, the public, you voted for this form of health service that's not working, so don't complain when you can't get into your GP. Uh, and... Uh, you know, someone's got to take this thing, as you said, by the scruff of the neck, because we can't have these stories every few weeks that the NHS can't cope. No, exactly right. Dr Lawrence Gurlis, thank you very much indeed. We get these stories every single day here at Talk Radio, of course, and keep them coming, because we want to keep putting the pressure on the NHS to make it better, to make it work properly, to make it work for everybody, not just for the people that work in it. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham, on Talk Radio. Good morning, welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham, right here on Talk Radio. Much to talk about today, because here we are, once again, the NHS is claiming uh, that it's overwhelmed. It's saying that we haven't got enough people to do the work that we need to do. So, in fact, uh, we are under as much pressure now as we were in January. Well, there's only one reason why the NHS is under pressure, and it's got nothing to do with the number of patients that are being seen. It's got everything to do with the fact that the NHS is not fit for purpose. The NHS cannot actually organise its own management structure. It cannot organise its own rotors. It hasn't got enough people in the wards because too many of them have been pinged and sent home to self-isolate. It doesn't have enough people in the wards because people are on holiday because they can't run a holiday rotor. It hasn't got enough beds for people, they say, uh, because there are so many beds being spaced out. They've lost 20,000 beds over the course uh, of the pandemic because they've taken so many beds out. Well, that's their fault, not our fault. There are people who haven't been seen for months and months and months, in some cases years, and they need to be seen, and they need to be seen now, as fast as possible. The A&E departments are overrun because GPs are simply sending people there to get treated for things that they should be being treated for in the GP surgeries, which are still not open as far as I can tell. And I need your help with that, 03444991000. The other big story, of course, that won't go away is the migrant crisis. We're now being told um, that the French are not able to actually turn back anybody in a boat if they don't want to be turned back. And so what they then do is they help them to get into British waters where they then meet the border force who then help them to come to this country uh, and become uh, processed for asylum seeking purposes. And that, I'm afraid, is something that Priti Patel, the Home Secretary, has vowed to stop but seems unable to stop. We'll be talking in this out to Charles-Henri Galois, President of Generation Frexit. He's going to be telling us what the French perspective is on the migrant crisis, why it is that we can't seemingly do anything about it. We'll also ask him about President Macron and what his popularity levels are like, and also about the vaccine passports that he's been trying to introduce into France, which has caused quite a big deal uh, of despair and quite a big deal of violence and demonstrations as well. 0344 499 1000. Kevin O'Sullivan's going to be joining us. He's back from his holidays uh, in the West Country. Uh, we'll find out what that was like for him and what he's got to say about a great many things, uh, including, of course, Prince Harry and Meghan, who have got yet another book coming out. Yes, I'm afraid so. They don't want to go away anytime soon. They want to keep invading our privacy, which is dreadful. Sean Bailey, uh, Conservative London Assembly members, coming up later on as well to talk to us about Boris and his crime bill. Uh, is sending yobbos out to pick up litter the answer? Is that actually going to stop knife crime? Very much doubt it. 0344 499 1000. You're listening to me, Mike Graham, right here on the fastest growing radio station on the planet. It is also now on television, by the way. It is, of course, Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Now, we haven't spoken to Charles-Henri Galois for a while because we used to talk to him about Brexit. But now that we've done Brexit and everything's fine, <laughs> he quipped. Well, now we don't have to talk about Brexit anymore. We now talk about other things. Charles-Henri, a very good morning to you. Welcome back. 
Good morning, Mike. Thank you very much for joining us. So much to say, so much to talk about. Um, let us talk first of all about the migrant crisis, because I was reading this morning that the new um, situation apparently now is that when the boats are leaving the French side, if the French authorities try to stop the boats from going anywhere, um, they can't because they don't have the power to do it. And if the people in the boats threaten with violence, there's nothing they can really do unless somebody's life is in danger. Yes, you, you, you have got a, you've got a point on that. So the issue mainly is that uh, migrants shouldn't be even in France. And then you've got this protocol between the UK and France. And that's right when within the European uh, Human Rights Court, you cannot do anything about uh, the migrants. And this is a big issue because when we talk about uh, asylum rights, it has changed a lot, actually, compared to the 70s. If you look at the figures in France, for example, during the 70s, you had only 2,000 people per year. You look in 2012, now it was uh, 60,000 people per year. And if you look at 2019, it's now 180,000 people each year. So it's no more about people fleeing uh, some... Uh, wars and so on it's no more about uh, asylum rights it's more economic migrants and that is an issue because yes you can say we have to treat uh, them with humanity and it's right you cannot let people uh, drown uh, in the in the channel or in the mediterranean but then europe cannot host the whole world cannot host all the misery of the world and actually you can integrate some individuals but we won't be able to integrate world people and world, world countries. So that is a big, big issue. And I think that they shouldn't be in France. And France has a big problem with the European Union and with the Schengen area. Because when they arrive in, they don't arrive directly in France because it's very hard also to, to arrive there. But they arrive uh, from Greece, they arrive from Italy. And then within the Schengen area, they are free to go wherever they want. So that is the main issue, actually. Mm -hmm. And that's also also why uh, the UK is suffering uh, it, because may, many immigrants want to, to come to France or, or the UK. So we, we receive many, many, many of them. And we won't be able to, to integrate it. And it will be a, a massive change for our country. And I think that even if you talk about uh, humanity and the development of this country, if all the young people of this country flee these countries, their country won't have any future and we will have the same issue. I think the main point will be to help these developing countries so that these people stay in their country. And then we have to be tough because otherwise you will receive all the people of all the world. Normally, you should, if a people is an irregular, you should be able to, uh, to send back to the countries and it should, it, should be, uh, it should be the case normally. Yes. Do you have the same problem in France as we have here, which is a lot of lawyers, a lot of human rights lawyers who say, well, once you've landed in Britain, uh, you can't be moved. You have to stay now for the rest of time because when they try to be deported, uh, it get, they get taken off planes, they get told that they can reapply for asylum. And there's no question in our minds now that this is a business. It's a big criminal enterprise, very much like smuggling drugs, now smuggling people. Exactly. They pay a fortune to, to cross uh, the Mediterranean Sea. So it's really a business. They are criminals and we should uh, struggle against uh, these criminals. You, you're totally right. And France has exactly the same issue because you have some European Union directives which prevent you to send them back. And you've got also the issue of the European Human Rights Court. I think the UK is still member also. And within these rules, uh, it, it creates some jurisprudence and then you cannot uh, send them back. It's forbidden. As, as for, Even if their, uh, let's say, appliance to stay is rejected, you cannot send them back. So it does not make any sense in terms of law. And uh, it's like it's like a signal for the people. You just have to land in France and all the UK and you will be able to stay. So it cannot work like this mm. because otherwise you will have many, many, many more people arriving. As we have seen it during the 2015 crisis, actually, you had many, uh, many migrants coming in because they knew that Germany had opened uh, the boundaries and you, you were, were welcome to, to come. So if you open it, 
you will have many people that will arrive. That's mechanical. Yeah. And we're seeing many, many more coming this year than last year even. Already uh, more than 9,000 uh, have come, which was the total number last year. Uh, that's already the first half of the year. So we expect there to be another 10,000, maybe another 20,000 before the end of the year. So there must be more um, immigrants coming to uh, the northern French beaches and hanging around there. So where where are they? Uh, where are they staying? Are there Are there makeshift camps going on? What? Yeah, normally what, what happens is they, they stay in some camps uh, near Calais and then uh, they, they try to, to come either by boat or, you know, in the in the lorries or, or as well. You, you have many, many cases like this. So it's always the same uh, the, the same way. And actually, even the, the French authorities are overwhelmed with uh, these people coming and then they, they don't have a proper, uh, let's say, a camp and so on. So it's very, it's very difficult. Yes, it really is very difficult. And is this driving, um, Charles Henri, the uh, the feelings of the French people about the European Union and the problem of having this, uh, you know, Schengen Agreement and this block of countries where where there are no borders? I think you, you see it on uh, on the immigration issue, but also we have seen it with all the terrorist attacks that we have suffered in France, and you know many of them. Had come, for example, from Italy, Greece, and so on. And you, you just think about it. If you add, if each country had its proper boundaries, normally these people shouldn't be able to come to France and to to do terrorist attacks. So I think it's more when we have some striking case like this that all the people are aware because otherwise, you know, all the people in the good neighborhoods and so on, they don't see it. So to them, it does not exist. They don't see the daily immigration. So it's more national issue when you have something like a terrorist attack because all the country is really aware of uh, of this issue. Yeah, exactly right. And how is the mood in France politically at the moment? Because obviously a lot of people demonstrating recently against the vaccine passports, against uh, Emmanuel Macron. I saw uh, the other day that some farmers sprayed his house uh, with manure, I think, um, as, as people in France like to do. Um, he's quite unpopular, isn't he? Yeah, it is unpopular, and actually, it's a, it's the first time in French history where you have demonstration between the 14th of July and the 15th of August. Normally, during summer, you, you don't have any uh, strikes or demonstration. And with this vaccine passport that uh, Macron has released, it's a uh, it's a very difficult time for him. And actually, it's 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 totally crazy this vaccine passport. So let's be clear: I'm in favor of uh, vaccination. But I think what, differenti- what differentiates the democracy from authoritarian regime or let's say dictatorship is normally in a democracy, you try to, to have some persuasion and to, to show the effectiveness of the vaccine. And it's not by constraining people and actually doing a, a tan extensive vaccine, vaccination passport because it's not only to go to a station or to, to a club, it will be to go to a bar, to a restaurant, right. uh, to, uh, to, to a train. So it, it's totally, even to hospital, it's totally uh, craziness. And actually, you have only two uh, countries doing this, and now Italy, but it's uh, Turkmenistan, Tajikistan. So you, you see what is the pattern and what is the model. Even uh, in China or in Russia, you don't have a compulsory uh, vaccination. So it's not a question to be in favor of vaccine or not. I mean, in favor of vaccination, but it's a question of principle. If you want to live in a freedom society, or if you want to to live in many states totally controlled. And it's uh, it's a very, uh, uh, let's say, freedom-destroying measure that Macron is doing. And that's why uh, many people in France are doing a demonstration. And I hope that we will uh, we will get the result. Uh, I was even myself in some uh, demonstrations to last uh, uh, Saturdays, and I hope it will uh, it will be uh, it will be out. And I think it will be the case because you will have some boycott, you will have some uh, drop in terms of attendance, and uh, it will be uh, some. It will create some damage economically, and this business will ask to Macron to take this out. Even in in uh, cinema and so on, they have a seventy percent drop in audience, so it's it's uh, so big, and they have done it actually in Moscow for bar and restaurants, and they have uh, dropped the, the the measure because uh, you, you had. Uh, 
sometimes have some people in the Baron restaurant. So in three weeks, they had to, to drop this. So I think it will be the case in France. And anyway, we will struggle against uh, this vaccination passport. Yes, I think that's absolutely right. Because also, one of the things that's not very clear, um, either here or in France or anywhere else, is that if you have a system like that, what does it mean if you're a tourist? If I come from, from London to Paris, and in Paris you have to have a vaccine passport, um, and I don't have that, because I'm from England, does that mean I can't go anywhere? Normally, uh, you, you have some uh, agreements between the UK and France, so you, you would be able to go, but if you come from the UK and you are not uh, vaccinated, let's say that you, you would have to do a, a test uh, every two days, so it's totally crazy, mm. and it's not something that you, you can actually do. So it's, uh, it's an issue for tourists, but also it's an issue in terms of principles, actually. I don't think that we have to uh to uh to uh let's say trash our principles away because we have a sanitary crisis we have the the weapon of vaccination and you have seen whether in spain or in the uk the cases were up but then stands to the vaccination of the most vulnerable you don't have uh, many deaths you don't have uh, hospital beds that are overwhelmed so we see that we are able to uh, to live thanks to this vaccination. So why you want to impose this freedom destroying measure if, you, if, uh, if the pandemic is under control, thanks to vaccination? It does not make any sense. And it's, it's more uh, political and controlling people that sanitary measure, uh, according to me. And I see that you're in Barcelona, Charles Aubry. So uh, presumably you've been able to travel out of France to Spain. Are you, uh, are you plotting Frexit there with the Catalonians? <laughs> no, actually, I'm in a free, uh, in a free, uh, let's say, uh, location with a vaccination passport. Uh, That's good. No, no, <laughs> no, no. Just, uh, just enjoying uh, my holidays. So no, 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 nothing political on that. Oh, that's good. But what about uh, uh, the Frexit movement? How is that coming along? And and uh, are you hopeful that you might move it forward in the next year? We are still pushing, actually, we are pushing a lot the idea to, to get a referendum on EU membership from France. So we are still doing it. But actually, I imagine it's quite the same in the UK. Because of the sanitary crisis, all the political debates are about COVID-19, are about vaccination passport, are about lockdown. And, uh, and I think it's also a pity because this COVID-19 crisis has shown all the harmfulness of the EU, if you if you think about uh, the the border control, because they say uh, COVID nineteen has no passport, but it's the people that uh, that will uh, bring you the COVID nineteen. It has come from China, thanks to open borders. So you have the border issue, you have all the issue of the vaccination rollouts because of the European Union. You've got also. Uh, the issue of uh, hospital beds that were closed because of the European Union, because when you are in the Eurozone, they ask you to do some reforms, and one of the reforms is to lower the spending on uh, healthcare. So it's because of the European also. So you have many, many arguments in this COVID-19 crisis in favor of uh, Frexit, in favor of taking back control, but uh, it's very, very... Uh, uh, let's say all the debates are centered about uh, should we uh, uh, vac do vaccination, should we do vaccination passport, and, and it's no more about sovereignty, even if it's linked. So it's quite hard to, to push for Brexit right now. Uh, we are pushing against the vaccination passport, but I hope that we will uh, be out of this crisis quite soon and we will be able then to push even more this idea of a referendum on EU membership. And let's be clear, if we got this referendum, I, I'm sure that we will win it. Yes, I think a lot of people have, have seen the EU in its true light in the last year. Um, and many people here are very happy uh, that we left, uh, given the situation with the vaccination rollout that Britain did, uh, when they saw what was happening in the European Union and the way that they were acting, and they were sort of, you know, making raids on the, on the factories where the stuff was being made. It was unbelievable. Yes, I see it was a total disaster. The European Union is in this crisis in the vaccination rollout. You know, even the CEO of Moderna and AstraZeneca, they have told this. They have told uh, we were speaking with the French government during uh, 2020 spring. Everything was on track in terms of financial agreements, in terms of uh, logistics and so on. And then the European, the Euro, the European Union has decided to take 
uh, this folder to to take care about it and they didn't hear nothing until uh, until uh, autumn so that's why we have three mm. months uh, uh, late on vaccination rollout and it's because of the european union and the border idea it was also the, the issue of the european union it was ideological they didn't want to close the borders even when you had many covid 19 cases in italy and spain it was uh, they didn't want to close the borders so it's mainly because of the european union as well that we're in this situation mm. Absolutely. Charles Henri, thank you very much indeed for talking to us. Charles Henri Galois there from the Generation Frexit, uh, talking to us from Barcelona, uh, giving us a lot of interesting tales from the French side of the uh, border issue with the migrant problem and also telling us precisely what is wrong with the European Union, as if we didn't know. Across the UK, online, on DAB and on your smart speaker, the Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Good afternoon and welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. We're, of course, the home of common sense. We've got an awful lot going on. We've got an awful lot to talk about in this final hour of the show. Sean Bailey joins us, Conservative London Assembly member who also spent 20 plus years as a youth worker. We want to take his uh, view on what is going on with Boris Johnson uh, and this crime bill that he wants to introduce. He wants to make it possible for more stop and search powers to be rolled out. He wants freed burglars to wear 24 hour tags. Uh, He wants named police officers to be uh, given... uh, instructions to liaise with people when they're investigating any particular crime that they've been involved in. He's going to try and clamp down on what has become quite a violent society in many parts of this country. I'm not sure it's going to work. You might say it's the right thing to do. You might say he's got the right idea, but has he actually got the wherewithal to make it work? Because one of the problems about crime in this country at the moment is not enough people get caught for what they do, not enough people get prosecuted for what they do, and I don't think enough people get sent to prison for what they do. Sean may have a different idea. Uh, We'll find out from him what he makes of it all. Three four 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 nine nine one thousand, of course, and we'll ask him about the police and the way that their role uh, has been changed over the years. Because under Cressida Dick and certainly Sadiq Khan in London, uh, I think the police have been dealt a very bad hand indeed, and they can't even carry out the powers that they have been given uh, by the national government. And I think that is part of the problem too. Oh three four 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 nine nine one thousand. We'll keep taking your calls. Lots of you've got lots to say about a great many things, including the migrant crisis, including the NHS, of course, as well, uh, and much else besides. Also, LaDonna Harvey's going to join us uh, from San Diego, California. We'll talk a bit about the Olympics. We'll take more uh, of your calls as well, of course, because you're listening to me, Mike Graham, right here on the fastest-growing radio station on the planet, now also on television. It is, of course, Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Let us talk right now to Sean Bailey, Conservative London Assembly member. Sean, very good afternoon to you. Good evening. Good, sorry, good afternoon. Good afternoon. How <laughs> listen, are you all? The, How day's, are you all? the day's going quickly, man. Don't wish it away. But uh, <laughs> but listen, um, crime in, in London specifically is, is really, really tough at the moment for the police, I think. You know, we know that the knife epidemic is getting worse and worse and worse. Do you think that Boris is on the right track here? Do you think he's going about this the right way? Look, there's, there's three things I'd say. Firstly, if you're sat somewhere else in the country and saying, oh, they're talking about London again, remember, crime's gotten so bad that we're exporting it across the country from London. Mm. So this, this, this serves us all to get on top of this. Secondly, you just need to look at Boris's time as, as mayor. He did very well. He halved the murder rate. He reduced all crime by 20%. He really had a handle on crime in London. London felt safe. And thirdly, we've got to reclaim our streets. We've got to reclaim the idea that Britain and London and anywhere else in the British Isles is a safe place to be. And that means we need need change. We need to support the police. Yeah. I mean, you've worked uh, as a youth worker for many years, Sean. You've got a great deal of experience in in inner city crime and and fighting it and also just in the communities. What do you think's gone wrong personally? Because I see you see an awful lot of young people now seemingly living kind of almost lawless lives. You know, these brawls break out in places like Selfridges. People get stabbed. You know, you've got kids on these e-scooters going around uh, robbing people at will. Seemingly don't give a a stuff about getting caught. Look, here's the real thing. Firstly, back in the day, crime was was about villains. Villains got involved. You could could make a decision to be a villain or not. The problem we have now, crime has almost become a bit cultural for young people Mm. and the way in which they interact and the level of disrespect they show each other and us and, and the adults around them is important and we need to get on top of that. The other thing as well here in London, the mayor has misunderstood crime. He's given people permission by saying it's all about poverty, it's all about disadvantage. Well, actually, it's not. Most poor people just try to make ends meet. They don't go out and commit crime. Mm. There's a hardcore 
war criminals who need to be pursued and they need to be caught and prosecuted. Because the worst thing about villains is, if you live in a community, you're growing up as a young boy or girl in London, let's say, or Leeds, and you see people committing crime and not going to jail, you think, well, why don't I get involved? Or at least there's very little risk in getting involved so people can make you join in more early. We need to get on top of this idea that you can just go unchecked and, and, and nothing you that's very important mm. i mean he's talked about putting rings of steel around these county lines uh, areas and where the drug gangs are operating outside of the big cities but i'm not quite sure how he's going to make that happen well, actually, we're already doing that, and I think he just wants to, to, to boost it. So what we've done, we have a national agency that fights county lines. They've been quite successful in closing down some of the bigger, more active gangs. There's some way to go. I think he's looked at that success and wants to continue it. So I think that's probably a very good reason to go. And what it is as well, when you close down county lines, not only do you kill the, the crime being spread, but you kill it where, where it originated as well. So it's a very, yeah. it's a very powerful initiative. Because watching what happened at Wembley when the Euros uh, final was on between England in Italy. I mean, almost all of those yobs, without exception, I would say, uh, who broke into Wembley without tickets, were not only uh, uh, doing so after having had quite a lot to drink, but many of them uh, on drugs as well. There seems to be the, the drug epidemic is fueling a lot, a lot of this crime as well. Look, this is one of the real problems we've got coming in London. In order to look like one of the cool kids, Sadiq Khan gave the signal that he'd somehow legalised drugs. A, he doesn't have the, the power to do that. And now he's just doing this full study and, and nobody knows what the outcome of that will be. But the problem is we're starting to send the message that taking drugs is, is fine. You, mm. you, you won't get prosecuted. And what that does, it generates crime. And I remember when I ran for mayor, I, I suggested that we should drug test a few people, you know, in high places who have really have powerful jobs, mm. you know, in the city, whatever. Everybody freaked out. Right. Because why they freaked out? Because that demand for drugs drives crime in poor communities. That demand for drugs drives robbery on our streets. Mm. And here in London, we've had a 76% increase in in robberies after the last five years and, and, it, and it shows you how these things are linked and the misunderstanding is you can just tackle one part of crime I think you need to come across the board and tackle it all yeah. and that's where the PM's plan for me has some some great merit and what about tagging um, offenders so that if they do come out of prison uh, they will be tagged and they will be tracked and they will be prevented presumably from reoffending. I mean my impression of the system is that not enough people are getting sent to prison in the first place and I know that some people think that prison isn't always the answer but what do you think? There's this free thing to say. Prison isn't always the answer, but let's be clear, it's definitely part of it. This is about keeping people safe. So prison is definitely part of it. And plus, you can rehabilitate people there. When it comes to tagging, I'm a massive fan and have always been. Many, many moons ago, I was special advisor to the prime minister and I wore a tag and I went to see some kids I knew who were in a gang and they went away from me. And I said, why is that? And they said, if the police know where we are, we can't do anything. Mm. One of them said to me, crime needs privacy. Tagging is an important way of breaking that privacy. It's not a panacea. It won't solve it all. But for particular types of crimes, so things like drug dealing, burglary, etc., it's very important because the police would know where you are the person wearing that tag would know that. And also as well, when people are trying to reform themselves and go the right way, probation often breaks down for them for silly things. They miss the bus, they're helping their sick mother. If they have a tag, they could prove where they were. I think it could be an important part of keeping the public safe and keeping some criminals out of action. And what about stop and search? Because there's calls for more powers for stop and search. And I know that's been a controversial subject, certainly in London in the past, Sean. Um, what is the advantage? What is the disadvantage of that? For me, stop and search hasn't been been, been um, controversial. Let's be clear. In London, we have record levels, 11-year high in homicides. Knife crimes have gone through the roof, through the roof. Stop and search is an important part. It isn't the only thing, but it's an important part of claiming the streets back for the public. And it's very important in getting these weapons off the streets. So the ability for the police to stop and search is, in, is vital. Of course, they have to do it sensitively, proportionately, but they have to do it. And when I ran for me, I was quite clear I would do it. And I was challenged by Sadiq Khan and the like. I said this, the single most important thing for the black community is for our children not to be murdered. If stop and search is going to help that, let's get it done. It's an important part of what the police can and should be doing. Absolutely right. And you and I haven't really spoken, I don't think, Sean, since you ran for me. You got pretty close to Sadiq Khan, didn't you? Much closer than anybody thought that you would do. Has that encouraged you uh, to understand that there are many more people on your side in London uh, than you thought? 
Of course. And look, everybody knows my deal. My politics is about working people. If you're sat at home now, Labour voter, Conservative, Lib Dem, whatever, I am for you if you couldn't miss a month's salary, if you couldn't miss a, work, a, month, a week's wages. I'm for people who have to work for a living and, and have to make through and make it through. And I've tried to tell people that. And I tried to say to them, look, I have an alternative to this virtue signaling mayor who, 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 who ostensibly says he, he's working for, for poorer people, and he's not. He's making all the soft, easy decisions. He's not making the tough decisions that will keep us safe and that us feed our families. And I just tried to give an alternative, and lots of Londoners went for it. Yeah, and he's still hiding from us. He still refuses to come anywhere near to radio for one reason or another. Uh, so if you happen to see him the next time and you're in one of his uh, mayor's questions, perhaps you could ask him why. But also, um, when is he going to get London back to normal? Because he's got very mixed messages on the economy, uh, on working from home, uh, on public transport. I mean, almost every month he seems to change his mind on stuff. He won't get London back to working because it's not what he wants to do. Make no mistake, Sadiq Khan's actions are about Sadiq Khan. He wants to be leader of the Labour Party. He wants to he wants to be the Prime Minister. So he's doing all the soft, pleasurable things that, that, that he thinks will make him more and more friends. But I don't think the public are fooled. The public want a leader. They want someone who's going to take responsibility. And taking responsibility in London would mean making some tough decisions. Mm. I don't think he's up to it. I just don't think he will do it. No. And as far as your um, work is concerned this year, what's your big sort of point that you're going to be pushing uh, when you are in the in, in the city hall when you are in the chamber what's your what's your big plan this this year there's three things. One is the breakdown of policing by consent. I think lots of communities are moving away from the police because the mayor is pushing a wedge through them. He's not backing the police. He's not saying the police represent our collective authority and they should keep that and you should support them in that. Secondly, he's looking at the, the unbelievably high murder rate in the black community. Something needs to be done about that. I put it to the mayor. He laughed at me and told me I was an angry man. He's correct. I am angry about that. And thirdly, is antisocial behaviour. Mm. Antisocial behaviour is growing countrywide, and that's the baseline for crime. Lots of other things come out of that, and I want to get on top of that to make sure that you know you just you can just rub along and don't have to worry about your sort of physical or the safety or the safety of your property. Absolutely, Sean. Good to talk to you. Thanks very much indeed, Sean Bailey, there, Conservative London Assembly member. Talk. Radio across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio via DAB, online, or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio.